historical thing as a type, but a direct prophecy of the end times and what would be at this time. So let's not gloss over it at all. Everything God says is important, and I'm turning past some history here, of course, but I'm trying to pick out essentially the story of Israel and what it took to get them ultimately out of sin and into the promised land. So let's go back to the book of Numbers and pick up the story essentially where we left off last night, uh, starting in chapter 20, Numbers 20. Uh, Just prior to this, uh, Miriam dies, and uh, God had given some instruction and so on. But here in chapter 20, the children of Israel, even the whole congregation, came into the desert of Zin in the first month. I think you might have called it the desert of sin for that matter, because that's what they did when they got there. I don't know what Zen actually means. may not mean sin, but it's <laughs> very similar. So they abode in Kadesh, and Miriam died there and was buried. Uh-oh, this valley had a problem. There was no water for the congregation. Here we are going all the way back to just this side of the Red Sea. And they gathered themselves together. Uh, there's instruction back here that I glossed over and didn't go to. Uh, I think it was still in Exodus where it says that you're not to gather a people together uh, and form a rebellion of any kind. And that a mob is not to be in charge. So here we see that happening. God had said don't do this, but they did anyway. They gathered themselves together a conspiracy against Moses and against Aaron. And the people argued with Moses uh, and spoke, saying, Would God that we had died when our brethren died before the Eternal? Why have you brought up the congregation of the Lord into this wilderness that we and our cattle should die there? Same old story, 16th verse. (laughs) You know, over and over and over. Well, at one point God mentioned the ten times, and now it's increased even beyond that as we've gone on through. That was just at that juncture, but it didn't end there. So here they say, again, you brought us out here to die. You are not a good leader. You have not led us properly. You really intended to take advantage of us all along and cause us to die. And wherefore have you made us to come up out of Mitzrayim to bring us into this evil place. We want to go back to the land of Goshen. We want to go back to where we came from. And many have left here who for one reason or another became discouraged or disheartened or whatever over various things and went back where they came from. It is no place of seed or figs or vines or of pomegranates, neither is there any water to drink. So there's nothing here for us we want to go back. Why did you bring us out here? You, you just want to kill us. Same old accusation. Well, here we are out on the desert, aren't we? <laughs> and uh, I don't see a place of figs and pomegranates and all those things. And above ground, at least, there's no water. Now, if you dig down a bit, there's abundant water, and God has blessed us with that, I think. But we're right outside 
the Canaan Mountains. These are named that along toward between here and Hurricane. The Canaan Mountains were just on the outside of them from Zion. Even these cliffs right along here that we're looking at out the kitchen window at the moment, on a map I saw them listed by name as the Cliffs of Zion. That's the last cliffs you go over before you enter into the actual part of Zion where the park and all is. I think God considers all this area part of Zion, but I think at least symbolically he led us out here to gather outside these mountains and here he said he would deliver us if we would leave where we were, get out of the cities and come dwell in the wilderness, he would deliver us here. And this is where he led us into this area near Zion. So in any case, it still doesn't, if you just look at what's around us here, uh, look like we've been delivered. Well, this isn't deliverance. He says, if you will go to the wilderness, there I will deliver you. It's yet ahead of us. Now, it's been a partial delivery. We've crowned, I guess, a little. But uh, we haven't really been delivered yet. We haven't been... uh, the, the, The church of God, of the firstborn here, has not been fully born. He's got to gather a lot of people before that happens. So the deliverance is something that's episodic, if you will. It comes over a period of time in different increments. And Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of the congregation and fell on their faces. That's what you do when you go before God. And the glory of the eternal appeared to them. And God spoke to Moses. Now, consider where Moses has been. This is nearly 40 years now where he's led this stiff-necked, degenerate, rebellious people. And he's faced these things and these rebellions over and over and over, and God has delivered. And yet, it's an unending cycle. It just goes on and on. So I'm sure Moses meek as he was, was beginning to have some difficulty with his attitude. Anyway, Moses took the rod as he had been instructed. Well, let's see. Take the rod, verse 8. Gather the assembly together, and you and Aaron, put it on both of them, speak to the rock before their eyes. Now, Aaron was doing the actual talking, so they were both in this together. Moses would tell Aaron, and Aaron would tell the people, Speak to the rock before their eyes, and it shall give forth its water. And you shall bring forth to them water out of the rock, so shall you give the congregation and their beasts drink. So Moses took the rod from before the Eternal, as he commanded him. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. He called them what they were. He didn't mince words. That's what they are. Must we fetch you water out of this rock? Now, instead of saying, must God fetch you water, he's referring to him and Aaron saying, must we fetch you water? That's different than Moses' approach and attitude prior to this. Moses lifted up his hand he didn't speak to the Aaron, and he didn't, Aaron didn't speak to the people, to the rock. He smote the rock twice. Now, he hadn't done what God had told him. 
hadn't followed instructions. But he was the leader that God had set, and God honored what was done there before the people anyway. That's a very, very important thing for all of us to grasp. That the leader may not always do everything precisely right. May, may even make mistakes. But if God placed him there, God will back that office. Even if he's wrong. What about Miriam and Aaron with Moses and the Ethiopian woman? He may very well have been wrong there, but God backed him and he punished them. You'll see that the same thing happened here. So the water gushed out and came abundantly, and the congregation drank in their beasts. Then God got privately with Moses and Aaron. It was his job to take care of Moses and Aaron, not the people's. And they had already rebelled against Moses and God here. He says, Because you believe me not to sanctify me in the eyes of the... To sanctify me, see, they said, Must we bring you water? No, you're supposed to say, God will bring you water. <laughs> There's a big difference there. Therefore, you shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. And Moses and Aaron had lived here 40 years of expectancy of entering in with the people. Moses had been commissioned to take them there. Now, as it turns out, he is only allowed to take them to the border. And there it stops because of this issue right here. So God honored Moses and Aaron and what was done, even though it was not according to his will and his what he intended, and they took credit to themselves. Uh, they were not punished in front of the people. God took care of them. So he said, uh, This is the water of Meribah, or water of strife, because the children of Israel strove with the Eternal, and he was sanctified in them. It, Moses may have struck the rock and not given God credit that time, but it was still God that opened the rock. <laughs> Moses didn't open the rock. He sanctified himself, even though Moses and Aaron hadn't sanctified him. Is there a lesson there? You can't do good and do good and do good and then turn from good and expect blessing. Blessed is he who endures to the end. Doesn't give up at any time, but continues doing what God wants done until the very end. There's no time for slacking off. There's no time for letting pride or ego get in the way and us not do what God has told us to do. Leader or follower, it doesn't matter. You cannot back off. Doesn't Paul say that? God takes no pleasure in them that shrink back. Come boldly to the throne of grace. We are not in any way to become impatient, frustrated, uh, disheartened, disappointed to the point of denying what God has said to do in anything we do. We are to move forward. Now, in one place there, right at that point, Moses said, Stand still and see the salvation of the eternal. 
And yet God said, tell the people to move forward. Now, a combination of those two things is the ultimate answer. Habakkuk began to question, well, God, when are you going to do this? How is this going to happen? I don't see any evidence. He got frustrated, peeked at God a little bit, frustrated and questioned God. And then he realized that's not quite right and backed off and said, I think I better sit patiently and wait for God. And he will make my feet as hinds feet. So, while we do not become presumptuous and try to get ahead of God, take over what he is doing, try to do it a different way, figure out that the leaders God has provided are not adequate, but they need to be replaced, or however we approach it like Israel did, we better be very, very careful. So, we are not to be presumptuous. We are not to try to do God's work for Him. We're to stand still and let Him work out what is going to be worked out. And yet, at the same time, while we're waiting patiently for Him, standing still and not moving forward till He's ready... At the same time, he tells us to move forward. Now, in what way do we do that? We do that by moving forward in overcoming, in growing, in trusting, forward in faith, forward in hope, in patience. We move forward in our lives, and yet we can't get ahead of the time and the way that God intends to do things. So we're to be very, very patient in waiting for our God to do His mighty and mysterious work. And at the same time, we're not supposed to sit down on our behind and do nothing. Blessed whom is found so doing <laughs> when He returns. Now you can sit back and say, well, I, Christ hadn't come back yet, so I think we better just sit down and go sit on a hill and wait as some Protestants have done. No. No, we keep moving forward, and at the same time, in another sense, we're standing still for Him to do His thing. But our thing never stops. Because even though we've spent nearly seven days now with the in the mode of putting sin out of our lives, I'll guarantee you, you will sin again. It will happen probably by next Passover. <laughs> Maybe even considerably before. <laughs> but let's learn some lessons here, not only from Israel's mistake, but let's learn even from Moses' mistake and Aaron's mistake, because he was in on it too. So verse 14, Moses sent messengers from Canaan to the king of Eden, uh, Thus says your brother Israel, you know not all the travail that has befallen us, what's going, we've gone through to get to the point we are, and uh, God has led us, and he says, let us pass through Edom. And the king of Edom said, no, now that's Esau. <laughs> that's Esau, and this is Jacob. So that animosity was still there.
so uh, God took them around. And uh, in verse 24, let's see, God, verse 23, The Eternal spoke to Moses and Aaron and Mount Hor by the coast of the land of Edom. So they were still just outside the border of Edom. Uh, we're going to see this land that we are living in today has a prophecy about it a little later, as I said. Anyway, it says, Aaron shall be gathered to his people. Now, here's the reason. For he shall not enter into the land which I have given to the children of Israel, because you rebelled against my words at the water of Meribah. So all Israel had rebelled over and over and over again, and Moses and Aaron rebelled somewhat. Not totally, not like Israel had, but somewhat against God's instruction there because of fit of impatience or frustration. Uh, be careful with our tempers and our frustrations. So he said he'll die. So he told Moses to take Aaron and Eliezer up to the Mount Hor and take all the priestly garments off of Aaron and put them on his son, and Aaron will die there. And he did, and Moses, Aaron did die. And uh, when the congregation saw it, they mourned Aaron 30 days. Now let's get to chapter 21. And when King Arad the Canaanite, which dwelt in the south, the Canaanites were in the promised land too, remember, uh, heard tell that Israel came by the way of the spies, then he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. So the king of the Canaanites, they were going to go into the land of Canaan, remember, and spy it out. They were saved from that. But the Canaanites knew that those two spies had been there after Rahab got them freed. And uh, they didn't appreciate having spies in their land. Most nations don't like it when spies come in. So they took some of the Israelites prisoners. And Israel vowed a vow to the eternal. They'll depart from God. They'll rebel against him. But here they vowed a vow to God and said, If you will deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. So God, they said, you, you give us the Canaanites, and we'll destroy their cities. So God hearkened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their cities. And he called the name of the place Hormath, uh, which means utter destruction. So they pled to God. He said, okay. And God did what he said, and, and they did what they'd say for a change. They journeyed from the Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom, to, to go around it. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. They wanted to go on a straight line, stay on the freeway, and yet they had to go around, and it must have been a fairly rough journey, maybe over mountains, rocks, who knows, uh, through thorns and thistles and problems. Well, they'd already had some of that in the wilderness, surely. But whatever it was, they had just vowed a vow to God. They would completed the vow. God had fulfilled their promise. And then as soon as it got a little tough going, they got discouraged. The going's tough. Well, I'm just going to go eat worms and die. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Didn't just confront Moses without Aaron at this point, but God as well. We heard this before. 
Wherefore have you brought us out of Mitzrayim to die in the wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loathes this light bread, the manna. We hate your manna. <laughs> we don't like your manna or your manna. Those were fighting words to God. He didn't go for that. Why didn't you give us a better piece of land than this one we got right here? This one had greasewood and rabbit brush and sage, and now it's got goat heads and foxtail. Of course, we brought that in on our hay and our tires, but it didn't have that when we got here, none of it. There was not a goat head on this place. I didn't see any tumbleweeds. There were no foxtail. We haul those in. <laughs> anyway, we don't have it just like we wanted it. You know, God could have given us, even around here, at a different elevation or whatever, He could have given us an area that was a lot more attractive to us than this is. But God didn't like their attitude. So he sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much people of Israel died. They had a satanic attitude, and God sent a serpent to bite them and kill them. Therefore, the sometimes, you know, people worship serpents at times, and sometimes what you worship will come and bite you. And they were worshiping Satan at this point. Because they certainly weren't worshiping God. Not with that attitude. That was the attitude of Satan. God says, whom you listen to and who you follow is who your God is. So they, they'd follow God a little bit, then they'd follow Satan a lot. That's why he told us, Pharisees, you worship, you know not what. The Pharisees thought they were doing everything correctly and boy, they were very, very careful with every little jot and tittle. They were going to get all the details right. They studied into the Hebrew, and boy, they were going to get the finest details correct. And God said, you worship, you know not what. Where is the simplicity in Christ? The Jews today haven't changed. They still got to tear off their toilet tissue of head of the Sabbath, six o'clock anyway, they don't keep the Sabbath, and uh, turn on the lights that they want on, and if they want the TV on, they're supposed to turn it on ahead of time too, so they can watch it on the Sabbath. But they go into all these little details that are not correct. They do not, do not reflect God's way of keeping the Sabbath. Same way with that unleavened bread issue. It's abominable before God. We loathe this light bread. So the snakes came, and then, oh my, 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 they decided to pray to God. Pray to the Lord that He take away the serpents from us. Moses prayed for the people. So God said to Moses, now God could have killed the snakes right then, boom, no, no big deal, turned them into rods or whatever. So he said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looks upon it, shall live. Now that almost sounds like God setting up a, an idol of a snake that they are to look to, and that snake will save them. That's not really what he's thinking, but God can use snakes, can't he, for his purposes? 
Moses made a serpent of brass and put it on a pole, and it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent, he lived. That which kills you can become a good thing, can it not? Satan does his best to destroy us, and yet what he does to us can cause us to repent. It can cause us to turn to God. Satan sometimes works against himself, and what he does to destroy us can actually help us. And so the serpent can partially be involved in saving us. You realize that? Satan doesn't intend it, but what he does can help save us. I'll quote you one example of that to prove it. You've never looked upon Satan as a helper. <laughs> but from this one direction and angle and aspect, I think you can. Remember Job? God sicked Satan on him. Now, Job had some attitudes and some self-righteousness which, even though he were essentially a righteous man, were not good attitudes. And we won't go into all that for the moment. But the point is, God said, All right, you can kill his kids, you can kill his animals, you can kill his servants, you can give him boils. And he did all those things to Job. And even turned his wife against him and said, Curse God and die, you idiot. And what did it do? Over a period of time there, as he suffered at the hand of Satan, and Satan was just licking his chops. He said, I am going to defeat this guy, and he is going to curse God and die, and I will have won. But God turned the axe of the serpent around and made lemons made out of lemons. And Job repented and got a clearer view of himself and a clearer view of God. And he learned the lessons God wanted him to learn. And he came out being blessed in greater ways than he ever had been before. And Satan went away very disappointed, discouraged, frustrated, and angry. I'm sure. Because God had worked what Satan was trying to do to one of his people against him. So God used these fiery serpents, I think symbolic of Satan, and they were following in Satan's attitude here. And he's just telling them, look, the things that the enemy does to you can be turned around and help save you in the long run. God did it. But he used what Satan was trying to do to them in their attitudes against him. I think there's a good lesson there. Anyway, they pitched, went forward and pitched before Moab toward the sun rising to the east. And uh, let's go on here. I think I'll pick it up again. Oh, yeah, here's a story we've got to go through. We have to. Chapter 22. The children of Israel set forward and pitched in the plains of Moab near by Jordan, near Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. So here's a guy 
who has a kingship nearby Israel, and he had seen what had happened to the Amorites, how God had uh, delivered Israel from them. And Moab was sore afraid of the people. Now, Moab was related to Israel through Lot, the nephew, and were a perverse people because of uh, the daughters going into Lot and so on. Uh, And that remained with them and is characteristic of those people even yet today. So Moab, Ammon, they are, we'll see here, uh, in this area, were then and still are. I mentioned that the other day in terms of Isaiah 15 and 16, where that which they lay up in store will be for God's people, and how they'll be destroyed out of the land. That means that they're there. Uh, But this will show you even more concisely and clearly that that is the case. So Moab was so afraid of Israel, even though they were related, because they were many, and Moab was distressed because of the children of Israel. Now, we have been brought into that same land, and those same peoples, I firmly believe, are here today. They came into the promised land ahead of us, as did these people, and they're there and will be dealt with. So Moab said to the elders of Midian, now Midian, remember, was where Moses went originally and married one of the daughters of of Jethro, who was a Midianite king. (coughs) So this is his in-laws. He says, Now shall this company lick up all that are round about us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. And Balak, the son of Zippor, was king of the Moabites at that time. So here's Balak, who is a Moabite, kin to Israel. But he was scared and frustrated. So here's what he did, verse 5. He sent messengers, therefore, unto Balaam, the son of Beor, to Pethor, which is by the river of the land of the children of his people, to call him. Now, Balaam apparently was of Israel, recognized the God of Israel, and was, at least at this point, somewhat a prophet uh, of God. And Balak sent the message and said, Behold, there's a people come out from Egypt. Behold, they cover the face of the earth, and they abide over against me. Now, it isn't clear here whether Balaam was actually of Israel or was a part of uh, the kingdom. Uh, But he certainly recognized God. And he looked to God for answers in this scenario that is being placed before us. So he said, now, I want you to curse this people for me. He recognized Balaam as a prophet who had a certain amount of power, obviously, so that's the one he wanted to take care of this problem. For they are too mighty for me, and maybe I'll prevail that we may smite them, that I may drive them out of the land. For I would that he whom you bless is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So he says, bless me and curse them. (laughs) The elders of Moab and the elders of Midian departed with the rewards of divination in their hands. So... The king gave them money for their help in this matter as allies uh, to go do this. So they came to Balaam and uh, said, look what the king gave us. We got rewarded for coming talking to you, maybe. Uh, I'm, I'm sure they bragged and says, hey, you know, they had to talk this king up and say, 
he, he takes care of his. Uh, look what he's done for us. He gave us money to come do this job and, uh, and so on. And that probably entered into it or it's because it's mentioned here. And he said to them, Lodge here this night, and I will bring you word again, as the Lord shall speak to me. So he had some connection with God, for sure. The princes of Moab abode with Balaam. He invited them in. And God came to Balaam and said, What men are these with you? Balaam said to God, uh, Balak the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent uh, to me, saying, Behold, there's a people from Ephraim, and so on. And God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. So God makes it very clear to Balaam, right off the bat, uh, Don't do this. Uh, I'm blessing these people, and it's not going to go well with you if you curse them. So Balaam rose up in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, Get you into your land, for the Eternal refuses to give me leave to go with you. So he's apparently taking God's side here, and that's clear all the way through here. The Balaam is at least allegedly taking God's side. Now there was something going on beneath the surface, which we will see. So, get this point. Here is someone who seems to be of God. Here is someone who considers himself of God. Okay? Now I'm going to bring this forward, and you're going to see some things about the end time, very clearly. But note the attitude here. Balaam's mentioned in the book of Revelation. I'll give you a clue. They're talking about the churches. Okay? With that clue, let's go forward here and understand that Balaam was not all that he appeared to be. So he appeared to be on God's side, and God was talking to him at this point. So he said, Don't go. The princes of Moab rose up, and they went to Balak and said, He won't come. So Balak said, Send more princes, send higher ranking princes. And go back. So they came to Balaam and said, Let nothing I pray you hinder you from coming to me. So he says he's getting more urgent here. He wanted Balaam to come and curse Israel. He's still scared. He says, I'm going to promote you and give you very great honor. And I'll do whatsoever you say to me. Now that was blowing smoke up his skirt, wasn't it? I'm going to just do anything you want, Balaam. He gave him some pretty strong promises here. So he says, Come, I pray you, and curse this people. So Balaam answered and said to the servants of Balak, It ain't about the money. If Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I cannot go beyond the word of the Eternal my God to do less or more. So he says, It isn't about the money, guys. I'm just trying to follow God. Keep that thought in mind as we move forward. Is there anybody who might say it isn't about the money, it's about serving God who are after money? I ask you. So he said, stay this night that I may know what the Lord will say to me more. So he's cogitating on this. He says, well, I'll go talk to God again. Now God came to Balaam at night. Now God kept trying to straighten Balaam out here. 
He was coming to Balaam. Balaam said, I'll go to God, but God came to Balaam. He'd done that before. And he said to him, If the men come to call you, rise up and go with them. But yet the word which I shall say to you, you shall do. Now, there was an if here. You're going to go to bed now, but if the men come and they say, go, rise up and go with them. But that didn't happen, did it? No. On his own, verse 21, Balaam rose up in the morning and saddled his ass and went with the princes of Moab. It hadn't happened the way God said to do it if it happens. He did it on his own. He took off with them. God's anger was kindled because he went. So God hadn't intended to go, and he didn't wake the the envoys up and have them ask Balaam to go. Balaam simply became presumptuous here and decided he wanted to go. He wanted to handle this his way. So he was kindled against him, and God stood in the way for an adversary against him. At some point then, uh, God began to intervene. And he was riding on his ass, and he had two servants with him. And he apparently was just going on his own here. It doesn't say that those men were with him as he went back. Maybe they were, but it doesn't say that. The ass saw the angel. Now, Balaam couldn't see the angel, but his ass could. And his sword drawn in his hand, and the ass turned aside out of the way and went into the field. Well, that's what a jackass would do (laughs) if he saw an angel with a sword. And Balaam smote the ass to turn into the way. But the angel of the eternal stood in a path of the vineyards, a wall on one side and a wall on the other. (coughs) And he saw the angel of the Lord again. And this time she recoiled in fear and crushed his foot against the wall. And then he really got angry, and he smote her again. The angel of the Lord, verse 26, went further and stood in a narrow place. He let him go a little ways, and he stops him again, where there was no way to turn right or left. And when the ass saw the angel of the Lord, she fell down under Balaam. She said, I can't go anywhere. I'm laying down. I'm putting my ears over my eyes. And Balaam's anger was kindled, and he smote the ass with a staff. So three times. Well... Balaam's ass was getting tired of this. In verse 28, what a story. The Eternal opened the mouth of the ass. (laughs) And she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you beat me three times? (laughs) And Balaam said to the ass, Because you mocked me. Now, he was so frustrated and perplexed by this time, he didn't even come to his senses that he was being talked to by this donkey. He says, I wish there was a sword. He's talking back to it. I wish I had a sword and I'd kill you. And the ass said to Balaam, Am not I your ass upon which you have ridden ever since I was yours to this day? Haven't I been a faithful burden, beast of burden for you? Have I ever done this to you before? And Balaam had to say, well, no. Now that you mention it, he still doesn't know he's talking to his donkey. (laughs) Then the Eternal opened the eyes of Balaam. 
And he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way, and his sword drawn in his hand. And he bowed down his head and fell flat on his face. Rutrow, there's more to this story than I was getting. The angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you smitten your donkey these three times? Behold, I went out to withstand you, because your way is perverse before me. Now, he said it's not all about the money. He said, I want to serve God. He said, I'll obey God, and I'll do what God says. But God says, no, in your heart, you're perverse. You're not truly from the heart following me, even though you think so. Told him flat out, your way is not right. The ass saw me and turned from me these three times. Unless she had turned from me, surely now also I had slain you and saved her. <clears throat> in other words, that donkey, <clears throat> to me, is I hold in higher regard than I do you. Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned, for I knew not that you stood in the way against me. Now therefore, if it displease you, I will get me back again. So, said, oh, I'll turn around, I'll go back. He's still making a semblance of serving and obeying God, even though he's been told his way is perverse. Oh, okay, I'll straighten out. I'll go God's way. So the angel of the eternal said to Balaam, Go with the men, but only the word that I shall speak to you, you shall speak. So he told them, Well, go on up. Talk to Balak. But don't say anything except what I tell you to. Okay? And then Balak heard that Balaam was come. He went out to meet him. And uh, Balak said to Balaam, Did not I earnestly send thee to call you? Why didn't you come? Am I not able indeed to promote you to honor? Don't, I'll give you gifts. I was going to honor you. And yet you refused to come to me. Balaam said to Balak, Lo, I am come to you. I did come. Have I now any power at all to say anything? The word that God puts in my mouth, that shall I speak. So he says, I've come to you, but I'm only going to speak what God says. There are people today, there were people in Paul and Peter's day who said, we'll only serve God. Nothing's changed. There's nothing new under the sun. So he went with Balak, and Balak offered an offering and sent to, the ba to Balaam, uh, and they came to the high places of Baal so that they might look out over Israel. So Balaam said to Balak, Build me in altars and bring sacrifices. And this is on the altar of Balaam, or of, of, uh, of Baal. Interesting, this man is named Balaam, a man of Baal. And Balak did as Balaam had spoken, and Balak and Balaam offered the altars and so on. <clears throat> and Balaam said to Balak, verse 3, Stand by your burnt offering, and I will go. Maybe the Eternal will come to meet me, and whatsoever he shows me I will tell. And he went to a high place. And God met Balaam. He said to him, I prepared seven altars. I've got this all set up for you, God. I'm doing this for God's sake. And the Eternal put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, Return to Balak, and this is what you'll say. So he stood and turned by his burnt offering, and he took up this parable and said to Balak, the king of Moab, God has brought me out of the mountains of the east, saying, Come curse me, Jacob, and come defy Israel. 
How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? Or how shall I defy whom the Eternal has not defied? So he's wrestling with this, and he's talking to Balak about it, and uh, kind of tossing it back and forth, the pros and cons. How can I do this? He wants to. He wants to. Deep down inside. For from the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him. Lo, the people shall not dwell alone, and shall not be reckoned among the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob and the number of the fourth part of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous, and let my last end be like his. And Balak said to Balaam, so he stands up for God, doesn't he, before Balak. Balak said to Balaam, what have you done to me? I took you to curse my enemies hired you for that, and behold, you've blessed them all together. And he answered and said, Must I not take heed to speak that which the eternal has put in my mouth? God is more important than you, Balaam says. Balak said to him, Come, I pray you with me to another place, and you can look out and see Israel again and curse me them from there. So they're continuing the episode. And he brought him to the field of Zophim to the top of Pisgah, built the altars again, and uh, God met Balaam again and put a word in his mouth. and told, Tell Balak this. So Balak said to him, What has the Eternal spoken? And he took up his parable and said, Rise up, Balak, and hear. He says, I, I'm going to tell you what God said. And he did. Just as if he were truly a man of God. And so a lot of what he said, well, he said what God had said, so it was true. So he says, God is not a man that he should lie, <clears throat> neither the son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and shall he not do it? Or has he spoken, and shall he not make it good? So Balaam shows here, as he recites these things, that God is God. And he's giving God credit. There are people who give God credit. Didn't the Pharisees? Didn't they say, God is our God, and Moses is our forebear, and Abraham? Uh, we're okay. We're serving God. Can you be self-deceived? Can that happen? I'm building some things here now. I think you see that. <clears throat> Behold, I have received commandments to bless. And he is blessed. And I can't reverse it. He has not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither has he seen perverseness in Israel. The eternal is God, the eternal his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. God brought them out of Egypt. He, uh, he has, as it were, the strength of the unicorn. Surely there is no enchantment against Jacob, neither is there any divination against Israel. According to this time it shall be said of Jacob and of Israel, Look what God has worked. So he recites the history here. As if he were a believer and a follower of God. But you can be a false Christian. You can say, I worship God and do him lip service and then not do the things that God says, just as Israel has been doing through this whole situation. Behold, the people shall rise up as a great lion and lift up himself as a young lion and shall not lie down until he eat of the prey and drink the blood of the slain. 
So God is predicting here that uh, someone is going to devour someone. <laughs> and Balak said to Balaam, Neither curse them at all, nor bless them at all. He says, well, if you're not going to curse them, at least don't bless them. Be neutral. That's like the story of the, the preacher and the bear. <laughs> I think I told that to some people here the other day. But that's that song about... Uh, it kind of ends up with, if you can't bless me, for goodness sake, don't bless that bear. Same, same story, basically. This is another joke, but we don't have time. Let's stick with the Word of God here. But Balaam answered and said to Balak, Told not I you, saying, All that the Eternal speaks, that must I do. Balak said, Come, I pray you, I will bring you to another place. Uh, let's continue this, and maybe you'll... Turn it around, and it will please God that you may curse me them from there. I want you to convince God to go ahead and curse them anyway. So he brought him to the top of Peor, and again they go through the offering and the sacrifice thing. Now in chapter 24, when Balaam saw that it pleased the Eternal to bless Israel, he went not, as at other times, to seek for enchantments, but he set his face toward the wilderness. And he saw Israel abiding in his tents according to their tribes, and the Spirit of God came upon him. So the Spirit of God again comes on Balaam. And he took up his parable and said, Balaam the son of Beor has said, and the man whose eyes are open has said. Now Balaam is saying, my eyes are open, I know what I'm saying, I know what I'm doing. He considered himself righteous. He really did. I know what I'm doing. He has said, which heard the words of God. I've heard the words of God, which saw the vision of the Almighty, falling into a trance, but having his eyes open. He says, I've seen the things of God, and I had a vision in a trance, but my eyes were open. I knew what was going on. How goodly are your tents, O Jacob, and your tabernacles, O Israel. Here's the vision. How good, uh, and as the valleys are they, are they spread forth, as gardens by the riverside, as the trees of uh, aloes, which the Eternal has planted, and as cedar trees beside the river. He'll pour out all these blessings and so on. God brought him out of, speaking of Israel, out of Mitzrayim. He's had the strength of the unicorn. Uh, and so on. And Balak didn't want to hear this about God's blessings on Israel. So in verse 10, Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam, and he smote his hands together. And Balak said to Balaam, I called you to curse my enemies, and behold, you've altogether blessed them three times now. Therefore now flee you to your place. I thought to promote you to great honor... But, lo, the Eternal has kept you back from this honor. So Balaam said to Balak, Speak I not also to your messengers, which you sent to me, saying, If Balak would give me his house full of silver and gold, I can't go by beyond what God says. And now, behold, I will go to my people. Come, therefore, 
And I will speak or advertise what this people shall do to your people in the latter days. He says, we're not just talking here about right now and me blessing or cursing Israel. I'm going to tell you what God says will happen in the latter days. Now, that was a long ways ahead of this story. Where did it point to? The latter days. Where are we in the latter days? Okay? So this was a prophecy for right now. I hope we get that. This is a prophecy for now. And he took up his parable. He said to Balaam, the son of Beor, uh, said, And the man whose eyes are open has said. So he says again, my eyes are open. I know what I'm saying, and I know what's going on. Here's a message for the latter days. This is for Nelson and Shirley and Jocelyn and Daryl and Mary and all these people here. And others. But it's about now. Not, I don't mean to restrict that to this group, uh, because God is going to draw more people, <laughs> 10% of what was. Anyway, uh, he fell into a trance, having his eyes open. He says, I shall see him, but not now. I shall behold him, but not near. This is a long way away in the latter days. There shall come a star out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. A specific prophecy of Christ, who came and has gone and will come again, but also of what would happen to God's people in the latter days. There are types of Christ who will arise to lead uh, God's people, even as Moses was a type of the Father and of Christ, as was uh, Aaron, the high priest, and so on. So it's speaking both of God and of Christ and of men here. <clears throat> a scepter, because he says that uh, Zerubbabel will be put forth as a standard and an ensign, or as a scepter, here in the end time. <clears throat> so it's both. And he will smite the corners of Moab and destroy the children of Seth, or Sheth. So where this happens with God's leaders is going to be where Moabites are. Okay? And Edom shall be a possession, Seir also, Edomites, shall be a possession for his enemies, and Israel shall do valiantly. Now he tells us in uh, Micah 4 and in Isaiah, low 40s anyway, I can't remember exactly, that he will make us a sharp threshing instrument to thresh our enemies. Isn't that what was just said here? They'll do valiantly against their enemies. Out of Jacob shall come he that shall have dominion, and shall destroy him that remains of the city. And when he looked on Amalek, he took up his parable and said, Amalek was the first of the nations. They were the leaders. But his latter end shall be that he perish forever. So in the latter day, there are going to be Moabites, Edomites, Amalekites around still. And he looked on the Kenites and took up his parable and said, Strong is your dwelling place, and you put your nest in a rock up in the mountains. We have mountains here, don't we? Stretch all the way north. 
Nevertheless, the Kenite shall be wasted until Asher shall carry you away captive. So the Assyrian is going to come into the land and carry the Kenites, and presumably the others here, into captivity. Doesn't God say when the Assyrian comes into our land in Micah 5, 7, even 8 of God's people will go out against Assyrian and send him packing? but not before he's done his dirty work on these other people. So, those are in the prophecies about now. And he took up his parable and said, Alas, who shall live when God does this? What does it say in Malachi? About he'll come as a refiner's fire. Who can stand when God does this? It's a prophecy for now. Verse 25, And Balaam rose up and went and returned to his place, and Balak went his way. And Israel abode in Shittim. Uh, interesting. And the people began to commit whoredom with the daughters of Moab. So Moab was still there, nearby. And they began to mix and commit fornication and adultery, whoredoms, with the Moabites. The Moabites were known for some sexual transgressions already. And they called the people under the sacrifice of their gods. So, didn't God say, if you uh, go with people who are not of your own, that they'll lead you astray and lead you to their gods? Told Solomon that specifically. I'm going to go over time today. You just watch. It's not even time yet, but let's move on. And the people did eat and bowed down to the Moabite uh, gods. And Israel joined himself to Baal Peor. And the anger of the Eternal was kindled against Israel. So after all their attestations of how they would serve God and God only and keep all of His commandments, and they go through all these rebellions and all these punishments and plagues, they immediately turn around and they allow the women of Moab to turn their heads and to worship false gods. The Lord said to Moses, Take all the heads of the people and hang them up before the Eternal against the sun. Take all the leaders of these people that have allowed them to, to go to Baal and hang them up before sunrise. Let the sun shine in their dead faces. That the fierce anger of the Eternal may be turned away from Israel. Moses said to the judges, Slay you every one of his, his men that were joined to Baal Peor. Look around. See who was part of this rebellion and get rid of them. Kill them off. Cast them out of camp. Behold, one of the children of Israel came and brought to his brethren a Midianitish woman in the sight of Moses. Now that was Moses' in-laws again. This Midianitish woman, or Ish. She part Midian, maybe part something else. And in the sight of all the congregation of the children of Israel who were weeping before the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. So, they heard that their leaders were going to be hung before sunrise. And they were mourning and frustrated. And here comes in this guy who could care less, brings this Midianitish woman in, in front of them all, takes her into a tent, and starts having an illicit affair with her, right in front of them all. Someone turned to evil ways right in the presence of God's people. 
And when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he got up from the congregation and took a javelin in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and thrust it through both of them. The woman threw her belly because she was on bottom. So the plague was stayed from the children of Israel. And those that died in the plague were 24,000. That's a lot of folks. But when Phineas killed those two, it stopped. And God said to Moses, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned my wrath away from the children of Israel. He confronted the adultery right on the spot, killed the adulterers, and God counted it to him for righteousness because he was, he was stopping sin in Israel. Wherefore say, Behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and he shall have it, and his seed after him, even the covenant of an everlasting priesthood, because he was zealous for his God and made an atonement for the children of Israel. Now, I think that's as far as I want to go right there. Let's go to Revelation 2 now. Revelation 2. Now, the book of Revelation is essentially written about God's people and their confrontation against the New World Order and the beast and the false prophet and the whole story through until the Father and the Son come to this earth and the new heavens and new earth is what the theme of the book of Revelation is. It's about the end times and the interactions between God and His people and what God does with them and what happens with the world, the interaction between His people and the world with the two witnesses and others, and the outcome of all those things. So here he addresses the church first and problems within it uh, all about the end time here. Now, the story of Balaam, as we've gone through it, isn't entirely clear because he appears to be a follower of God. And yet, uh, there was something going on underneath, as I said. Now, let's read what that was. Uh, here I want Revelation uh, 2. And uh, here we're talking to the church at Smyrna. Verse 14, I have a few things against you, because you have there them, here in the end time church, you have there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel. So he says what Balaam was really doing was showing Balak how to get the best of Israel. Now, did Balaam know the rules of God? Yes, he did. He knew they were not to go a-whoring after other gods and to seek their answers from those who were not of God. Okay? So, he obviously, behind the scenes, began somehow to parade the daughters of Moab and Midian and all these Gentiles before the men of Israel and seduce them into having ungodly affairs with those women. Women are 
uh, symbolic of churches in the end, of course, too. So he taught Balak what he needed. He said, I won't curse them, but I'll show you what to do that will make God mad at them. Because they've been told not to mix with the people around them. That's what he did. To eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit fornication. So didn't it there? They went, started worshiping Baal Peor and started committing fornication. So obviously, underneath, there was something evil going on with Balaam that did not meet the eye beneath the surface. He appeared righteous. So have you also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, or Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Now, Nicolaitan, people have pointed out, means destroyer of the people, and they have equated the ministry of Worldwide Church of God as the Nicolaitans who've destroyed the people. Now, I don't think that that is truly the case, although there were certainly uh, those in the ministry who did not lead people in the right way and did do a lot of destruction and actually caused the church to even turn from God. But I don't think it was the ministry as a whole. But there are people in the end time who will seek to destroy the people. Okay? Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Now let's consider this. This is about the latter days. Let's go back to Acts 8. That's the story of Simon Magus. Now, what he did was seem to be converted. Maybe I'll turn back there and, and we'll just examine it. We're not in a hurry. Sabbath's not over. Uh, but I want to finish this story because it has meaning for us. In other words, we had this story back here with... Moses and Balaam. Now we have the early New Testament church. And here's someone who comes in chapter 8, verse 12. Philip preached the things concerning the kingdom of God, and people were baptized, men and women. Then this Simon, uh, let's go back to verse 9. Here, uh, Philip and others were performing miracles and so on. There was great joy in the city. Verse 9, But there was a certain man called Simon, which before time in the same city used sorcery and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one. So Samaria was the northern tribes. So he was within Israel, and he was doing lying signs and wonders and so on but looked upon himself as a leader, and he looked upon himself probably as a follower of God. But then, verse 13, Simon himself believed also. So he liked what Philip was preaching and what was happening, and he got baptized, and he continued with Philip. Are there false conversions? Are there people who say they are committed to God in His way, who are self-deceived, and think they're Christian, and may not even be. 
And he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and signs which were done. Now, he thought he himself was had been doing pretty well. But man, what Philip was doing is far beyond anything he could do. Sounds like kind of like Balaam, doesn't it? You know, he's a semblance of obeying God, a semblance of conversion here. Anyway, now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John, who when they were come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Now Philip wasn't a minister, so he couldn't lay hands on them. He could baptize only. He had been authorized that far. So when Peter and John, who were truly ministers of God, came, they laid hands on them so that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For as yet he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptized in the name of Emmanuel, or of Jesus at the time. So they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. People, just lay members, sometimes think they can baptize. They can lay hands on. This, no, can't do that. Can't anoint either. Although they think they can. We're as holy as you. In fact, we may be holier than thou, and we can do these things. It's not the way God set it up. It's not the way the Word reads. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Spirit was given, he offered the money, saying, Give me also this power that on whomsoever I lay hands he may receive the Holy Spirit. I want to be a minister too. I want to set myself up as a minister, and I'll give you money if you'll do this thing for me and lay hands on me. But Peter said, and apparently the Greek says, go to hell with your money, because you have thought that the gift of God might be purchased with money. Balaam said, oh, it ain't about the money. But he was working behind the scenes to get that money one way or another without appearing to disobey God. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sight of God. Balaam's heart was not right either. Repent, therefore, of this your wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. But I perceive you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And I, Simon said, Pray to the Lord for me, that none of these things which you have spoken come upon me. Now what Simon Magus did was go out and start the Catholic Church. <laughs> without the Holy Spirit. So he kept on with his movement. Just as Balaam disappeared, in a sense, from his presence and relationship with God, but he was still working behind the scenes to seduce them to worship false gods, and he was going to get his money one way or another. Although he would not admit that to himself, I'm sure. Now let's fast forward to Worldwide Church of God. And there came in one named Stan Rader, and he eventually began to think that he was of God, and he finagled himself into the inner sanctum and managed to get himself ordained, but he never did understand the ways of God. He was a Jewish lawyer who, I think, helped set the state of California against the church, hoping he'd get his payday behind the scenes. See, I'm serving God, Stanley would say. But he was working behind the scenes for his own purposes, just like Balaam and just like Simon Magus. 
Enter Joseph de Koch, who pretended to be a minister, and yet whom I heard counsel people down an office from mine there in Pasadena when I was there. And I could tell he didn't understand God's way at all. He knew nothing about the ways of God. And he used to confound me that he was in the ministry as a local elder at the time, and yet he didn't understand God's plan. And I remarked to my elder at that time that this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. <laughs> it, it really perplexed me. And I thought, well, because he does Bible studies for the widow, maybe God is kind of overlooking this because he, he, he seems dumb as a post. And he did. But there he was. And what did he do? He departed from God and led people to Baal Peor. Oh, you were Protestants, and all this Protestant love is wonderful, and you live by grace only. So he led them back into Protestantism, worshiping Baal instead of worshiping God. And he taught them to fornicate with the other religions of the world and depart from God and go back to being a Protestant or a Catholic or whatever they had been with Catholic doctrines, mainly Protestant doctrines, and led them away from the Sabbath, away from God's holy days, led them away from everything of God and back to Satan's doctrines. No difference between Balaam, Simon Magus, Joseph de Koch. Now let's move forward. Because Herbert Armstrong died, and 70 years after God called Joseph de Koch in 1926... God opened up another message in 1996, 70 years later, and revealed this area and what it meant. So, a new work was begun in 1996. Now, fast forward to today. People came. They said they were of God and that they were going to do what God had said and that they would honor uh, the, the leadership that God had placed, and they would obey God. Sound like an Israelite, doesn't it? We will obey everything that God says. We'll leave our homes, we'll come out in the wilderness, we'll serve God there, and there He will deliver us. But wait a minute, God hasn't sent us the right leader. Uh, God doesn't know what He's doing. This leader's a sinner. Therefore, we must do something about this. So they gathered themselves together, and they formed a coalition or a plaintiff ship and filed a lawsuit. Now, let's examine that a little bit. A lawsuit is filed with a court of law. And the suit that this one was filed with was not the court of heaven, but the courts of the world. Now, Christ had clearly said, do not do that. And Paul had said clearly, do not do that. And yet that is exactly what people here have done, is gone to the courts of the land. Now, they don't look at it that way because they feel they're righteous. They feel they're serving God. And what they did was they left the church of God claiming to still be Christians, but denying what God had done right before their eyes, and 
they went to a court of the world, feeling justified because after they had left this congregation, they formed their own and then marked and disfellowshipped me. Therefore, I was no longer a brother and they could bring suit against me. Now, how's that for sleight of hand? How's that for getting around God's instructions? Wasn't Balaam trying to get around God's instructions and still maintain his righteousness and think that he was a servant of God? Didn't Simon Peter, by starting what he called the Church of God, didn't Stanley Rader and Joda Koch, by saying, I'm a follower of God and God is with us and die of cancer soon thereafter? And his son led the church right back into paganism. Sorry, that's the story. And the church died. And it died about 1996 when God revealed new information to start another move forward. And I'll have more to say about that in, in the future. But let's get this story. So what they did was went to the court of the world, to Balak, if you will, and they formed a complaint. And within that complaint, and now this is on record with the court. I have a copy of that lawsuit. And in it, it asks that this church be dissolved. Let's see, I think first they ask that they may be made members of it, which shows that they are not members now since they have asked a worldly judge to make them members. Now, is a worldly judge going to what? Counsel them for baptism and baptize them and lay hands on them? How can, he, how can a worldly judge make them members of God's church? Now, that's literally what they have asked in those words for the judge to do, is make them members of God's church. That isn't the way you come into God's church. I've read some scriptures about how only Christ can draw you and only He can make you there. And only the ministry of God can baptize you, as we just read in Acts 8, and lay hands on you. So He can't make them part of God's called out ones. And they admit that they are no longer part of this congregation in the same breath. Then they ask that once they've been made members, why? So they can have the assets of the church, that the church be dissolved. In other words, they've asked a worldly judge to put you out of the church. You members here. They've asked that this congregation be dissolved, done away with, gotten rid of. Just like Simon Magus started his own. Then they go further and ask that the assets of this congregation be put in the hands of a receiver. What is a receiver? In legal terms today, a receiver is someone whom the judge appoints to take over the church and its assets, just like the state of California appointed a receiver to take over Church of God to do with its assets as he pleased, Now, where are you going to get a receiver? This is a Mormon area. Their attorney is a Mormon attorney. 
well, he's not really mainstream Mormon. He's part of the fundamentalist Colorado polygamist group, or was. So he is a Moabite, or an Amorite, or an Edomite, or something like that, who are dwelling in the land today that have to be dealt with in the latter days, even as Balaam said, God told him to say. So they are literally asking that this congregation, which I believe with my whole heart God formed to begin with, be turned over to an Edomite or Moabite lawyer, and that all its assets be turned over to him. And of course these people are hoping that that Moabite or Edomite Mormon lawyer will give them their land. At least they call it their land, the land they're living on. It has never been promised that they would have a deed. They were given a lease only, not a lease purchase option. Ever. And they were never promised a deed. They were never promised more than a lease. But now they have gone, not to God, but to the world, and asked that this happen. I ask you, what is the difference between these people and Balaam and Simon Magus and Joseph Tkach and Stan Rader and them? They are asking what the Nicolaitans did, that you be destroyed as a people. They are modern day Balaamites and Nicolaitans by definition, with what they are doing. And at the same time, giving lip service to God and saying, we are still the people of God. And now what Balaam did all the way through, while he was working behind the scenes to get what he wanted, in this case, the land, and being willing to have you deposed as Christians and this congregation to go away, and everything that we have built here be given to them. They are liars and cheaters and frauds and embezzlers, and no liar and no thief will be in the kingdom of God. Unless they repent, they are headed to the lake of fire, just as is Frank Nelty, whom God said in Revelation 22, if anybody adds to or takes from these words... They will not be in the kingdom of God, but go into the lake of fire. Unless Frank repents of doing away with Luke and Acts and Deuteronomy 16 and who all knows what else, he is going into the lake of fire. It's what God said. Now, he still has space to repent of that, and I hope he does. But these people who are committing fraud and embezzlement and going directly against Christ's instructions and in finding a way around it by saying, okay, we're out now. We have our own group and we've disfellowshipped you. How do they disfellowship me, disfellowship me for something I never was part of? Can't do it. Doesn't bother me. I don't care. I don't want anything to do with them. But you begin to see the story of what would happen in the latter days. And God said there would be a rebellion at Anatoth and told how it would be dealt with. It's at the door. The rebellion has happened. It just hasn't quite been dealt with yet. But it will be. God have mercy. 
and I hope they repent. Because I love those people. And I want them to be in the kingdom of God. Now God says that they are going to go into the tribulation. Famine and the sword. And that every one of them, man and woman and all their children, will die there and there will be no remnant. Complete destruction. Now that does not mean that in the meantime, before that death, that they might repent. The way is too rough for us. <laughs> and we will repent and do what God says. Now, I hope that's what happens. But we need to face the facts of what is actually being done here and call a spade a spade. Because what happened in Balaam's day and what happened in Simon Magus' day and what happened in Herbert Armstrong's day is happening right here on this very property. God choose who is following God and who is not. Now, you and I are not perfect by any means, but I don't think we'd still be here if we weren't truly seeking to serve God and doing it in honesty and in integrity and not lying and cheating and trying to steal. So let God be the judge. I've been told that I'm the rebel by some of them. Let God be the judge. Thank you for participating in the wonderful Feast of the Passover.